everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Fun Book Diplomacy, and I'm here with Derek Marshall. Hello, Derek. Hey, everyone. Hey, do you want to introduce yourself to the podcast audience? Um, my name is Derek Marshall. Um, I've been living uh, back and forth between Berlin uh, for the past little, little over a decade. Um, I am a bar owner in the city. I've just recently produced uh, a film, A Fortune in Gold. Um, I opened the Kayak.com office here in Berlin, um, and I started an NGO here when I first came to Berlin. Mm-hmm. Let's hit one of each of those one at a time. So. Sure. Uh, what was the first one? <laughs> um, I forget. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just um, pick one. Just pick one. We'll okay. Um, I guess maybe we'll go to the most recent. Um, mm-hmm. We can mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the movie. Okay. Uh, movies are fun to talk about. Yeah, of course. What is what is this movie? What is it about? Um, the movie is, is basically about four young people that come together after Burning Man, and okay. they go on the search for hidden treasure mm-hmm. in uh, the Southwest. And along the way, they realize that maybe it's not you know, the gold that they're searching for, but, but something else. Mm. So have you filmed it? Or? Yeah, so filming um, was predominantly done uh, last fall, mm-hmm. um, and then we did some pickup shots in, uh, in the spring of this year. Mm-hmm. You actually went to Burning Man? Um, yes, and, and I went to Burning Man and how uh, was last that? year. Burning Man was, uh, was great. It was, uh, Tell me about that, because I don't know so much about it, but I know, I, know, I know, like, generally, the only thing I know is the takeaway that people have, <laughs> and so I don't know so much about it, so... Well, so my first, the first burn that I went to was in 2012, mm-hmm. and I think I actually, um, I had heard about it earlier, in 2009 or 2010, some people that had been said, oh, you know, you should go to this really cool festival, um, it takes place in the desert in Nevada, and, um, and, you know, so I did a little bit of research and I thought, oh, it'd be really cool to, um, to buy like an old, uh, school bus. Mm-hmm. And so I got online and I was, uh, looking up old school buses and, um, and I was like, oh, this is great. You know, you can get an old school bus for 2000. And then I was, uh, <laughs> and then I was thinking to myself, I was like, oh, but do I need a special license to drive a school bus? So then I was like doing some research it and I was like, you do, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, damn, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be a little more complicated. Um, and so then I, I put it off for a couple of years um, because in my mind I was, I was convinced that I had to do it in, you know, in some type of crazy school bus and you know, <laughs> get it in New York or Boston and drive cross country, um, sort of like different messages and, and paintings and kind of, you know, my, my sort of vision back then was to kind of stop along the way and just mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, sort of engage with different people that we, you know, that we kind of came across and just kind of tell them, you know, what we were, you know, what we were up to. Um, the school bus got changed in the end for an RV. Okay. So we ended up, you know, doing the whole like uh, rental RV thing, um, and yeah, it was it was actually it was it was pretty cool. I went with um, with a friend of mine who's an international human rights lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kidnapped my brother um, <laughs> from LA. He, he was, didn't want to go. He well, so we we got the tickets, and I and I and I bought his ticket. And I said, okay, like we had planned to go. And then I, I got to LA and he was like, no, I can't go. It's a really bad time. And I remember just like driving up to his, you know, to his place. And I was just like, you're coming with me, like go and pack your suitcase. Mm-hmm. And, um, so he was like, okay. Um, so we went and, um, and it was a group of, there was actually four of us. And then a fifth, uh, a fifth person joined, um, a really, another good friend of mine joined from Boston and yeah, and then we all went, you know, we went in and it was kind of our, our first year. We joined, um, 
we joined the camp Opulent Temple um, was the first camp that we uh, that we did and yeah I mean the first experience the first burn for us was really 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 great um, for me personally I wouldn't I wouldn't say that there was any um, I wouldn't say that there was anything totally mind blowing about the experience I mean I thought it was great um, but having lived in Berlin for a long long time um, the bar is pretty high. The, the bar, yeah, the bar is high. And I mean, you know, I was joking at that, at the first Burning Man, I, I would go around and I said, uh, you know, they have this term default world and mm-hmm. default world is, uh, is the, you know, is the real world outside of Burning Man. And I kept on saying, yeah, like Burning Man in the default world is Berlin. Yeah. Um, you really have, uh, you know, you have this kind of um, experience here in this city. Yeah. Um, and so I think from that perspective, I, I really enjoyed it. Like I thought it was great. Um, I had, a, there were a couple of issues I, you know, there were a couple of issues I had, um, Obviously, there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of uh, um, a lot that you have to consume in order to go out there. I mean, you're going out into the middle of the desert, mm-hmm. um, so you have to buy you know glow sticks and lighting you know lighting things. A lot of people are you know buying costumes, um, and so you know there. I, I guess for me, it's um, it seemed like you know there's quite a bit of um, you know there's quite a bit of preparation, money that you need to spend, and, and also things that you need to consume. What do you estimate is the cost of going Burning Man for a single person? For a single person, um, I mean, it depends on on how you go. Yeah. If you're just going with kind of like a tent and you sort of are, are camping, you could probably do it for, you know, including the price of the ticket, which is about four hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. You could probably do it for maybe eight hundred dollars, mm-hmm. seven or eight hundred. Um, but you know, but really, I, I think that you you probably want to spend or not you'd want to spend, but, you know, probably if you, if you set yourself a budget of a thousand, then it should be able to, you should be able to go and, and, and do it. And, uh, in this film, what's the plan for this film? So, so the plan for the film, I mean, we're, we're in post-production right now, mm-hmm. um, and we've applied to, um, to a few different festivals. So the plan, um, the plan is basically to get this film out to, out to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how, really, how long is it? It's, um, I think we're going to have it be like a, around an hour and 40 minutes. Um, that's kind of what the, the cut is right now. Mm-hmm. And do you have a website for it already or some sort of link? We, we do. It's, it's, um, it's www.afortuneandgold.com. I'll throw that onto the, the show notes. <laughs> cool. Yeah. cool. Cool, cool, cool. Cool. All right. What's an, another project? Kayak. Kayak. Let's talk about that. Um, sure. Um, the <laughs> kayak, uh, I, I kind of got involved with them in 2008. Well, maybe some people don't know what that is. Kayak. Yeah. So for, for those of you who don't know, kayak.com is a, it's a travel meta search. Um, and a lot of people use it to, to book their, their flights or find hotels or, um, or cars, mm-hmm. uh, car rentals. Um, and I started off with them as, as an intern and, um, I kind of, I sort of raised or, you know, rose relatively quickly in the ranks, um, just by, you know, by, by kind of luck of, of being here in Germany, um, willing to travel. And, um, and so when I left the company, we had, I had managed to convince, uh, executive leadership to open, um, to open an office here in Berlin, uh, because of all the, the talent that's kind of available here in the city. And, um, and the last that I checked, um, the Berlin office of Kayak is now the biggest office in, really? uh, for all of Kayak. Yep. All of Kayak. All of Kayak. Oh, and, it, wow. and it's a cool office. I mean, if, um, if Where's people, it located? It's at the old Postbahnhof. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and, uh, okay. they used to throw, like, up until a couple of years ago, they used to throw, like, crazy raves and parties there. Um, Postbahnhof was also, um, like, the, uh, the Stasi, mm-hmm. the East German secret right. police, um, did, like, a lot of their, um, 
surveillance work from there. And um, yeah, I, I think the first time that I saw this building, um, it's very like, special. It's a very special place. It's a really special place. I mean, I remember going to parties there, mm -hmm. but also when we started to um, when we started to like look for office space. So once you know, once we had managed to convince leadership, like, hey, we should open an office here in Berlin. Um, we then went around and, and set about like looking at different spaces. And, and once we came to the space, you know, I was like, we have to do it here. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's just it's really um, it's really majestic, uh, majestic and, and and a really magnificent space. Mm -hmm. um, it also overlooks Berkheim. Um, <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> so there's there's a good you know a good kind of you know reminder of, of what you can uh, you know what you have to look forward to on the weekends. You can achieve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's say a bit more about kayak. What did what? How did that go? Well, so uh, you know, so I, I started kind of managing a small team of of international what we called international testers. So mm -hmm. They were um, they were a team that were you know responsible for translating um, the different national websites. Mm -hmm. um, and, and testing them to make sure that you know, we were catching bugs and, then, and working with the engineers. And, um, and very quickly, as, you know, as Kayak's international strategy kind of grew and as our, you know, the number of national websites grew, um, the team then obviously grew. And, um, and everyone was kind of working sort of as a, you know, as a contractor. So it started off as kind of a contractor situation. And, um, and I think that you know, once international became sort of like a, a top priority, it was kind of like, okay, we need to actually sort of, you know, start hiring employees. And that's kind of, that was sort of the moment when it was like, okay, it's time to open an office here. Mm -hmm. And what is your background? Like, did you study like programming or what was it? No, so my background, I have, uh, I have an MA in international communication. Okay. Um, and I studied, so I did an undergrad in business and international, um, international relations. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of my my focus was always sort of, yeah, I would say kind of a combination of politics and business mm -hmm. um, was kind of my background. That's very good. I didn't get the business side, so I can't do a damn thing. <laughs> so. No, I, like honestly, I think a degree is, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I really do believe that it, it, it depends on, on the person and depends on, on the type of person that you are. I mean, I think that a degree for the wrong person, you know, you could add 25 cents to it and you could maybe buy yourself a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. So I think that for me, if I, if I really am honest and really think back to, um, you know, to, to my education, like definitely I, I loved it. I loved taking the classes, but, um, but my big takeaway from, from university was how to think critically. Mm -hmm. Um, but aside from that, I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, I mean, maybe you get some validation by having a college degree, but in, in some ways I think, okay, well, if I had never even gone to university, if I had kind of, you know, spent those four years doing something else, living in Europe, traveling, um, I probably would be in, in sort of the same, you know, general position that I'm, that I'm at today. Mm -hmm. I think whatever you need to do, you need to be dynamic, mm -hmm. just need to be able to not follow that destiny, I guess, or like the path that the degree prescribes to you. Right. So. No, I mean, I think that, you know, we, we often, you know, you, you hear the term of like kind of, uh, you know, the imaginary or the, yeah, the imaginary shackles. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the imaginary shackles are stronger than, you know, than the iron shackles. And, um, and I think that, you know, growing up in the States, um, we have like a very, very, um, we have a very strong um, national culture. And I think that that strong national culture, um, we receive additional validation um, from the fact that, you know, wh whether it's right or wrong, we receive additional validation from the fact that the U.S., 
currently a superpower. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, um, therefore those, those imaginary shackles are almost stronger because it's saying, well, look, we're on top. Might makes right. Yeah, I- exactly. Might yeah. makes right, precisely. Yeah, yeah it's, that, that concerns me. But, but anyway, <laughs> what do you think? Uh, so you've been living here for 11 years? Yeah, so I mean, I, I've been, you know, I, I, I've been back and forth from Berlin since 2001. Mm-hmm. So I've always like, you know, kind of come here and, and, and traveled quite a bit. Um, I sort of officially got like an, uh, you know, like an apartment here in 2008. Mm-hmm. So I've sort of been here kind of considering Berlin more or less my base for the past like, you know, seven or eight years. But I have spent a lot of time in the U.S. and I've, I've, um, I've traveled quite a bit as well. Yeah. And we were talking a bit about your family's history, mm-hmm. your relationship with, not your relationship, but uh, your family's relationship with Kirchner. With Kirchner, yeah. yeah. Um, talk a bit about that. Yeah, so there's uh, there's a, a, a movement here in, in uh, or an art movement that mm-hmm. took place here in Berlin um, in the yeah kind of at the turn of the, the after the First World War exactly yeah. um, and it was called the Bridge Movement mm-hmm. Dipuka and um, yeah basically my my grandmother's cousin um, founded the Bridge Movement with uh, Kirchner. Mm-hmm. Um, and Can you so, explain to the audience who, who Kirchner is? Uh, Kirchner is, uh, he's an amazingly talented painter, um, German expressionist um, painter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and him and Heckel, um, there's actually a museum um, here in Berlin to the expressionist. Um, and you can see Heckel's and, uh, and Kirchner's works um, there. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is that located? Uh, it's located... Gone? It's located somewhere in West Berlin. <laughs> somewhere in the West. Yeah. Um, I think it, I think it's in Wilmersdorf or Zehlendorf. It's 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 somewhere in the random, West. Random random place. Yeah, it's it's actually quite funny where where it's located. I I haven't checked the history to find out exactly why it's located there, but um, but it is located. Um, yeah, I'd say probably about half hour away from downtown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those places are really ordinary. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I just love that about Berlin. I was walking today and I walked past the uh, Brecht house. Mm-hmm. It's like, cool. He used to hang out here and yeah. do his stuff. Yeah. What was another one of your projects that you were yeah, so we covered? Um, so when, when I first came here um, and first kind of started coming to Berlin like more seriously, um, I was working on a, a youth initiative, um, which later kind of turned into a sort of a, a quasi-NGO, um, and, and the focus of the NGO was on transparency in UN documents. Mm-hmm. So in UN, like basically <clears throat> facilitating um, access to UN information. Um, and so what we did is we went out and we, uh, we interviewed thousands of NGOs um, and then government officials to kind of figure out wit- what very specific types of information they needed from the UN information system. And we figured that by finding out what information is actually needed versus, you know, the, the mass paper mill that is the UN system, information system, that we would be able to, you know, perhaps, you know, do our part to, to put a dent in, um, to put a dent in, in the, the mass amounts of, of inefficiency um, that, that the UN kind of carries out in its, its you know, in its daily operations. What's your view on the UN as it, as it operates now? Um, I mean, it's, it's really, really difficult because a lot of, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to kind of, I think it's, it's too easy to criticize the UN. Of course. Um, 
and and I think that a lot of you know especially in our country there's there's a lot of criticism of the UN. I mean, for me, the fact that um, the fact that a lot of major conflicts um, aren't happening is you know is probably very much thanks to the UN. I think that if you take a look at the Iran deal, um, there there are definitely very there's a very strong role um, that the UN has played in uh, in these areas. So. What do I think about the UN overall? I think it's 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 inefficient for sure, but I think it's very very necessary, mm -hmm. um, and and I honestly believe that the way to make it more efficient would be to have um, would be to have people that come from the outside um, that kind of come in to sort of break. maybe help to to break some of the group the things. Maybe there mm -hmm. might be some group think, and then they have the. It's, it's 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 kind of an older institution, no, relatively speaking. It's been around since after the Second World War, right? So they might still be carrying the way they used to do things, and that's certainly things move so quickly now. Yeah, that maybe they need to adapt better. And did you did you see um, the articles or like the news about this UN? Um, yeah, it was a UN intern, I think, from the US. And he was sleeping in a tent in Brussels. Um, and uh, no, so he, was just, he was like, yeah, I just didn't have the money to, to, to live here, but I'm still an intern at the UN. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It, do, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I've actually, I've known other um, people that have worked for, uh, you know, that have worked as interns mm -hmm. for uh, other... They never pay. Huh? They never pay. Most often not, yeah. no. Um, but I, I have heard of, and I, I know a couple of people that have also lived in tents. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this guy's not, not special or anything. He's just happened to... Well, well I think he is probably him. special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what, tell me about the experience of working with uh, NGOs. Um, I mean, again, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very, very easy to kind of criticize um, civil society and mm -hmm. criticize NGOs. Um, I think that I think what's really really hard, um, and what makes things really political and difficult with NGOs is is the chase after capital, um, in order to to have their organizations run. I mean, with a business, you can sell a product and you can you know you can optimize you know you can optimize your revenue streams and you can um, yeah you can you can bring in money somehow, um, or there, let's say you can be creative in the ways that you kind of bring in bring in money. With NGOs, it's a little bit different because you're you're constantly you know looking for, for you know for writing grant applications um, and and hopefully trying to find investors like angel investors or not investors but angels that will essentially just give you money because they believe hey this is the this is the right thing to do um, and I think that that chase for money makes makes the NGO world um, highly politicized mm -hmm. did you have any experience with NGOs when you were in Washington or no um, I mean, I had some, my, the, the time that I had the most interaction with NGOs was when I was, um, I, I did a stint at the UN in Geneva for six months. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I wasn't working at the UN. Um, I was working at an NGO called Wafuna, or I was an intern there while working for my NGO as well, organizing a final, um, a final information conference, um, in, in Geneva. 
And so what I did is I met with a lot of um, I met with a lot of information officers from different um, different agencies in different parts of the UN, and then I also met with a lot of um, local NGOs to try to to bring you know both sort of sides together. Um, and in the process of like making friends and in the process of of you know having you know just kind of one on one chats with a lot of people in the NGO world, um, I was able to to you know sort of get a lot of information about how their organizations were working or not working and the challenges that they were having um, and that that kind of yeah I mean that's sort of what's informed my um, my kind of take on the whole NGO world. So what makes an effective NGO? Mm. Well I mean it starts with the cause <laughs> I mean if, if, a, if a cause is, is good and important I think that that's that's really really um, that's kind of the first step. After that um, I think definitely a lot of courage and and a certain resilience because you really need to if, if you're going to go and work for an NGO like especially one that that might not have like the most sexy um, topic mm -hmm. you really have to to be very very strong um, and and really have a lot of patience and and a lot of um, a lot of drive to kind of make that organization successful in order to, to get the funds that you need. You, there's a certain persistence that you definitely... You can't half-ass it. You can't half-ass it, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you need, to, you need to, to be in 110%. That's intense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think NGO work is probably one of the most... Um, I think NGO work is, is super, super intense because um, you're, uh, you're dealing with, first of all, internal politics, um, then you're dealing with politics within the NGO space, mm -hmm. um, especially if you have other NGOs that are, you know, doing or working in a topic space that's similar to yours or in some cases the exact same. Um, and so then you're fighting over resources and, um, and it's really tough because, you know, you have this feeling that, you know, you're fighting, you know, NGOs like that, that should be like really, really strongly kind of together sometimes are having, um, uh, yeah, some political issues that really, um, make them less efficient in, in tackling a certain topic. And so what, what are some topics or issues that you most identify with or the things that you want to tackle? For me, um, I think, you know, a lot of, I think the environment is, is one area that I'm super, super passionate about. Um, consumption, reducing consumption, um, the, the, the transition away from fossil fuels. I think that, that that space is kind of one space that I'm very, very interested in. Um, aside from that, LGBT, um, LGBT issues is, is definitely um, a close second. Like I really, um, yeah, I mean, especially here in Berlin, like I think that there's, there definitely is a need for, um, uh, for greater LGBT outreach. Um, what's, what's the situation in Berlin? Um, I mean, the, the situation in Berlin is, is interesting because you have, um, you have a lot of different ethnic groups that are sort of all living together. You have, you know, your expat community, you have your kind of more mainstream Germans, you have like a very like large Turkish community, and then, and then most recently you have refugees, um, political refugees, um, that are coming from kind of all over the Middle East and, North um, Africa. Uh, yeah, North Africa, et cetera. And, and it makes things, you know, especially with the topic of LGBT, it's, it's really, um, it's, 
it's really difficult because, again, some of the organizations, like a lot of the organizations, there's certain infighting. Um, and, you know, some of the more, let's say, German, you know, LGBT groups, um, they're not fully interacting with, you know, the, the, let's say, the, yeah, like the expat LGBT groups. And so there's a lot of, um, there's kind of a lot of, there's a need for, for greater dialogue and, and kind of unity in the different LGBT, um, or in the LGBT community. Is there a sort of clash of ideas when, you, when it comes to having the LGBT community and also Turkish community or, or, or uh, refugee community? Is, is there anything about that in recent news? Um, because I haven't seen it, but I, I would imagine that it's a little bit... Because I saw in Sweden that uh, it was a, a right, one of the right-wing parties had a, a pride event situated in a predominantly Muslim neighborhood mm -hmm. in order... To kind of uh, stop Like under, under the nominal purpose to, to sort of make problems with, with the two communities so I don't know if that if that's a thing here or... I, I honestly I don't, I don't know yeah, yeah. and what, what do you think about the situation with with uh, refugees and because just today there was about 44 people died in the Mediterranean from just crossing over and it's really awful but how do you think uh, what do you think Europe's role in it and how history might look back on it? Um, I mean, obviously, like, I'm, I, I fall more on the side of, you know, of kind of granting, yeah, granting amnesty and granting, um, you know, right of passage for refugees that are coming from, from really from, from wherever. Mm -hmm. um, I think long term, I definitely am, am someone that, that, tends to believe more in, in loosening the borders, mm -hmm. um, smartly loosening the borders um, as much as possible, like, you know, with hopefully, like, you know, ideally, like, an end goal, like, one day, I don't know, 100 years or in, you know, a couple hundred years where we have an actual open, um, open border system. And so I think from that perspective, um, I, I, I do believe that European governments should... Um, should really take a very proactive stance in in kind of helping people that want to come to Europe come to Europe. Mm -hmm. um, there needs to be yeah, there, it just simply it needs to happen. It needs to be more cooperative, I think, because right now it seems like it's almost a competition between the European governments and <clears throat> these whatever conditions these <clears throat> these people are are escaping from, and it needs to be more help. Maybe maybe we're skeptical about this, but how can we help? Right, um, and it, I don't see that from. At least, yeah, I don't see it from like Angela Merkel, who who is no. telling, telling a, a Palestinian <laughs> girl that I right. just can't take you, uh, and then she's, she's like, I feel crying. bad, but I don't want to help. I don't, I don't express any um, <clears throat> willingness to help, and that's I, I think that's inhumane or uh, lacking of empathy. Right, that's a big problem. Um, um, what's your like daily routine here here in Berlin? Yeah, do you have one or do you have habits that you, you have to follow? Or? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I 
I try to get up <laughs> by 10 or 11 mm -hmm. every morning, um, which may sound crazy for a lot of people, but, but for, you know, being kind of, um, you know, being a member of the expat community or being a member of this kind of, um, yeah, let's say kind of free spirited, you know, free spirited part of the city. Um, I think that's fairly, <laughs> that's fairly reasonable. Yeah, um, I think so too. <laughs> so I, I try to make sure I get up in the morning. I try to have a, you know, I try to have a somewhat reasonable daily routine. Um, my daily routine during my quote unquote partying years was very different. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I, what was that like? I, I missed a lot of day, daylight hours. Mm -hmm. Um, that's never a good feeling. Uh, no, no. And it's, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's not necessarily the most sustainable, um, not necessarily the most sustainable way to exist. Um, but I say that with, uh, with no judgment. Everyone, I, I, I firmly believe that everyone sort of should make their own decisions. And if someone wants to live their life like that, and that's one thing that Berlin has taught me more than anything else, people should live their lives. Um, as much as a, of a cliche as it sounds, people should live their lives the way that they want to live their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and if you, if you love kind of the partying scene and if you, you know, believe that that is what you want to do and you really are happy and you're, you're loving it, then I think more power to you. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. You, you've found your passion and, and if you have the energy for it <laughs> and if you have the energy for it, <clears throat> um, for me, like I, I, I definitely sort of delved into that world for, for a couple of years. Um, and it was, it was a hell of a good time. Um, I really, really enjoyed it, and you know, from from time to time, I also, you know, it's it's not that I've, you know, totally shut out partying. Like, of course, I still, <laughs> of course, I still go and um, and get my boogie on once in a while. Mm -hmm. um, but now, I think my priorities have just shifted, um, and I think there are there are things that I that I want to do, and and things that I want to um, uh, kind of achieve. And I think that having a little bit more structure in my life is important to be able to. Um, to do that. What are those goals that you're trying to achieve? Um, I mean, right now in, in the immediate is, is getting the film um, distributed. Mm -hmm. um, so that so that's it, been a long project and that's been a goal for a while. For a while, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's kind of, you know, that's an immediate goal. Midterm, um, I think my, my next goal is to try to figure out what my next project is going to be. So what I'm going to, you know, do and how I'm going to spend my time. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm doing a lot of thinking right now on how exactly that could look. Um, and I'm trying to leave myself as open as possible to, to all the different options. Do you have a meditation practice? Or? Um, I, <laughs> I'm, I do meditate. Um, and I try to do it, you know, ideally every day. But right now I'm doing it about two or three times a week. Mm -hmm. um, and what I do for that is I, I put on some, you know, river sounds or you know, sounds of, of water. Mm -hmm. I love water and the flute. <laughs> Give me water and a flute and, <laughs> and I can meditate for hours. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's about it. like water and flutes. And I, um, and I, I like to meditate for about 30 minutes. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Cause I, you know, I, again, everyone sort of says this and you know, the earthy crunch, you know, earthy crunch Americans. Um, but it does, it works. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I really enjoy it. The way I describe it to people, it's like, um, so the everyday thoughts that come to your head, uh, you can you can imagine your mind as the table, and the thoughts that come to your head are the documents that you're getting, the assignments, things and like things like this, <laughs> and you're just uh, you're just putting them down because you don't have time to, to to organize things. And then when you meditate, it's when you finally you pick up the pieces of paper and you look at them, 
and you say this goes here, this goes here, and finally when you do, when you when you get through it, the your your desk is is all organized mm -hmm. and ready for, ready for the next step. Yeah, no, I I think that's that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. um, and so you see you see the benefits of of doing this. Yeah, I mean for for exactly the reason that you just said, it helps me to you know clear my thought. It well it helps me to to order and um, order and clear my thoughts. Mm -hmm. And have you ever asked any of any people you work with if they've done it if they do it as well or mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah I've I've you know I've, I've recommended it to some friends mm -hmm. um, again I'm not one to to really I, I don't want to push mm -hmm. um, sort of my you know my kind of metaphysical mm -hmm. views on other people um, I'm very happy to to share them and I'm, I'm happy to you know to kind of you know have a have a discussion but I'm you know I I sort of it's if it feels right to recommend it to someone then I will. Um, otherwise, I'm, I'm sort of... Um, yeah, you're not like a vegan who really has to tell people how vegan they are? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> there's a lot of them here. It's really strange to me in, in Germany that there's so many vegetarians and vegans. Um, I find that strange because the, the German cuisine is very... has a lot of meat and um, I, I just think to myself, Man, you're missing out on your own cuisine. <laughs> all these Germans, all these vegans. Uh, do you think that's strange, or do you think that's almost, or is it a trend, or is it they're just Germans being progressive as as they always are? I mean, I'm like my my honest feelings. You know, my my honest feelings with regards to vegetarians and, and people that are vegan is um, live and let live. Um, if it's if it's a you know a lifestyle choice that that works for them more power to them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, it's, it's kind of one of those things where I don't, I don't really want to, I really don't, I don't want to push my views on, on other people. Um, I also was a, was a vegetarian for, for six months. Mm -hmm. um, How was that? It was, it was great. Um, it was, it, it, it felt right. Um, and at some point, maybe I'll try, you know, try it again. Um, I don't know. We'll see. How did how how, how did it feel different? Um, I, I I think I just had like a, a greater awareness of I had a, a greater awareness of what I was putting into my body, mm -hmm. and I felt like I had more energy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm already a very very like you know high energy individual, um, so having even more energy was was great. Um, I also stopped smoking, so that probably had, it, like, Ooh, it was kind of like yeah. I stopped smoking, and vegetarian, caffeine. stopped caffeine, so I did that for, like, a six-month period, and I felt amazing. Without the caffeine and cigarettes and meat. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and then slow, <laughs> then I came back to Berlin, and slowly everything kind of came back. I started to drink coffee again, and then <laughs> started to have a cigarette again, and then, you know, started to eat meat again. Berlin's a bad influence. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't oh. drink coffee until I came here, actually. No, it's like I, I need a cup of coffee. Cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, I'm say, the the one good thing I'll say is is with regards to caffeine, like I think that I've I've um, I was I was so aware of like how frantic I was getting with ca like with caffeine and with mm -hmm. coffee that um, I made kind of a switch to tea, and that was kind of a um, it was a a, a workable kind of um, substitute. Yeah. So now I, I do drink a lot of tea, um, and I mean tea has caffeine as well. So, you know, I have like, you know, I'll have like a cup of tea in the summer, I have iced tea, 
I make a mean glass of iced tea. <laughs> or maybe I should have <laughs> had one earlier when you offered. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, there, there's always time afterwards. We can, right, we can right, have, right. Um, yeah, we'll I got the crushed it. ice. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you believe in the, uh, the idea that when, you, when it's hot outside and you drink warm things, that it cools you down? Um, I'm skeptical, but it might be true. I don't know. I mean, so I... It doesn't I live... feel good, certainly, when you're drinking a hot tea on a really, really hot day. So I, I studied abroad in China. Mm-hmm. So I lived in Beijing. For um, how long? And for... I did a semester in Beijing, and I did a semester in Shanghai. Wow. So I spent, like... I spent some time in, in China, and that was... Um, and there, I drank a lot of... Um, I drank a lot of... The uh, real stuff. The real stuff. The real... The real... <laughs> it's like the real, real tea. Yeah, yeah, it's the real stuff. And in the summertime, um, yeah, like I was, you know, warm, you know, warm drinks. And then in the winter, it was uh, cooler, yeah. cooler beverages. I feel like in China, they generally discourage cool beverages. Hmm. I don't know if you felt that. At least my parents, they're like, don't drink cold ice water, you'll get sick. But it's great. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I, I don't have a strong opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just know that I, on, a, on a hot day like today, I love... Iced tea. You're just gonna have it. I'm gonna have it. I'm gonna have (laughs) fucking iced tea. (laughs) Um, Tell me about the ice. All the ice. All the ice. All the ice. You're gonna use all the ice. Mm -hmm. You gotta get more crushed ice. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me about your experience in China then. Um, Yeah, my my experience in China was great. Like, I really, um, I had a a great time. I was studying at the uh, Beijing University, Mm -hmm. um, which is uh, like a really, really good um, university in China. And yeah, my professors were, they were really inspiring and, and very, very interesting. Um, we also, I mean, it, at the same time, it was a study abroad trip. So there was like a very like strong element of, you know, being social and, and kind of, you know, getting, getting yourself acclimated with Chinese society as well acclimated with Chinese society as you can as a Westerner. Right. Um, being there kind of for, for only you a couple Chinese of or... um, Back then I did. My, my Chinese at that point was better than my German. Yeah. And, um, and I had an internship at a, at a wine uh, import-export company, like a Western wine import-export company. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, and I was, I was speaking China, uh, sorry, I was speaking China, I was speaking uh, Chinese um, every single day, listening to the radio in Chinese. And, um, yeah, it was, it was at a level that, um, that I was, yeah, I was, I was conversational. Um, and then what was interesting is that was in 2004, and then over, you know, if, it, it, I think with, with Asian languages, at least for me personally, if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now it's it's a shadow of, of what it once used to be. It's always a shame when you discover that or you reflect and you're like, oh wait, I don't actually speak it anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the same for me. I don't use Chinese very often as, at all. Um, at home I speak Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. And even then my Taiwanese is pretty dog shit. But my Mandarin... Like... <laughs> I feel like an idiot. Needs improvement. Yeah, it needs improvement. Yeah, everyone will tell me that. My parents are like, oh, when you have time, review a little bit. I can't read or write. I can understand. Speaking is a difficult, difficult task. But yeah. Um, And did you get get to know a lot of Chinese people? Or was it, were you interacting with the people in your... Was it foreign students Program. that you were with? Yeah, so I, that was, I mean, that was the one downside of the experience, like in hindsight, was that we didn't have so much contact with local students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, 
that also had had a lot to do with you know with the fact that I was you know a teenager like still like nineteen twenty mm -hmm. um, when I was there and I think I just didn't I didn't fully grasp or understand how to make local friends um, and I think that if I were to you know if I were to move to Beijing today or if I were to go to Shanghai today I think it would be a different story just because I lived you know away from the country that I was born in for uh, for a while and so I think I, I would have a better sense of, of how like and and not only a better sense but a desire um, to actually do that. Mm -hmm. um, what was the difference between Beijing and Shanghai to you? To me, um, I mean, Beijing I loved. Like I really thought it was awesome. Um, it's definitely the you know the political city. It's the cultural city, um, and I think there's a lot of like interesting art um, and interesting nightlife that goes on there. And I I absolutely. Um, really, really loved my time in Beijing, and I, I very much would like to go back and, and possibly spend some months there um, at some point. Shanghai is is different. It's definitely the more like commercial um, commercial city, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm sort of bored by commercial cities, mm -hmm. um, you know. Or let me put it differently, I'm bored by cities that don't have um, the pockets that that are kind of fostered in. in I don't want to say anti-commercial cities, but in, in cities that are not commercial. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that in Shanghai, at least when I was there, um, I found it, yeah, I found it kind of boring. Yeah. Um, it's sort of, it has that, like Frankfurt. A little bit like Frankfurt, <laughs> you know, a little bit like, you know, Munich. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, not to, you know, pass judgment on these cities, but um, I think that if you really want the, the, you know, if you really want the interesting kind of conversations, if you want the, the provocative and evocative art, then, um, then you'll probably, you'll look to more to Beijing. Do they have like art exhibits on the streets and things like this, like they have here? Um, again, it's been, it's been over 10 years since I've been in, in Beijing. 10 years is a long time. So it's been a long time. I, I do have friends that are, that are living there right now. Um, and they've told me that there's a really cool, um, kind of art scene that's going on. And they've sent me some of the work um, from some of the different artists, and it looks great. Um, yeah. Do you, do you feel connected to, to, to China really deeply, or just like, uh, I'd like to go back sometime and visit? Um, that's a good question. Because um, if it was your first, was it your first time study abroad? It was, well, I mean, I've been to Germany. Before, oh, okay. yeah. so my my first kind of experiences abroad. Well, my my very first experience abroad was Haiti. Um, mm -hmm. I went there to like on a on a mission trip um, to go and help to build um, better women's shelters, and that was when I was you know a teenager. Um, I'm I'm not a missionary. I'm you know I would not necessarily consider myself a Christian, um, although I was raised raised in the church, but. Uh, sorry, where, where was I going with this? Oh, but uh, yeah, so I, I did Haiti, then I was in, in Spain, I did like a, you know, I did a, um, like a, a, like high school kind of uh, exchange mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, with a small village in Spain. And then I started coming to Germany and spent a lot of time here. Um, and then I went to China. Mm -hmm. So do I feel a deep connection to China? Um, I would say a, a, a deep interest. Mm -hmm. um, and and a curiosity to know more, so it doesn't feel like home to you. It's just no, 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 no. It's it's definitely it's one of those places that I'd I'd be curious to kind of go and explore more, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like home like Berlin does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and while you were there, 
you did have interactions with, with, with local people a lot or not you said not as much as you not, liked would have liked, but right. But did you get a sense of what what their feelings were about just about society and anything? I don't know, it's really broad. It's but, it's a broad question. Um yeah. I mean it was interesting because I, I would say that our our biggest um, interaction or the biggest interaction that I would have was our daily um, we would take cabs mm-hmm. to get from you know Beijing University to the internship and so and those cab rides would last you know sometimes two hours and it was really interesting because I'd quiz all of the uh, the Beijing cab drivers and I'd ask them you know what they thought of George Bush Bush was president what they thought of George Bush what they thought about the the upcoming election um, what they what they thought about um, what they thought about Japanese, you know, mm-hmm. Japanese and Japanese society, what they thought about Beijing, what they thought about the government. Um, and so it was really, it was very interesting because I feel that if you really want to know um, what Chinese people are, are thinking, just ask the cab drivers. What do um, they think? Um, <laughs> it, it, it was, they, were, they were really, really open. Like that yeah. was, I think that was, that was why I got a lot of, um, a lot of pleasure from it because, uh, you know, it, at least with, and, and this is probably the fact that we weren't like close, close friends, but at least with like a lot of the Chinese students that you would, um, uh, that you would interact with, there was kind of a certain hesitation when you, when you asked certain questions like this. With the cab drivers, um, they, they, they did not hold back. They were, you know, completely, <laughs> completely open. Um, you know, there were some cab drivers that lamented the fact that capitalism had, you know, taken such a strong toll and they said, oh, everything was better, like, you know, in the you know, in the 70s and, you know, in the, in the 60s, like, you know, the bees to, you know, the students would come out and they'd help with the harvest. And um, so you had stories like that. But then you'd also have, you know, cab drivers that were, you know, rather critical um, of the government. Oh, you know, you know, the, the government needs to be like, you know, there needs to be greater political participation. There needs to be like, you know, more, you know, a free press. Like everything here is, um, I mean, you know, it reminded me very much of, of kind of, uh, yeah, of, of, People in our in, in in the United States that are that are critical of the government. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, when you were speaking Chinese, did you have like the northern R at the end? I, I did. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was. I took very like oh, very. No. <laughs> <laughs> I I yeah. It was. Um, That's so funny that you developed the the, the northern R. I did. I did <clears> put that on there. Yeah, and did you when you went down to Shanghai? Was that. Uh, you were speaking Chinese still. And well, I, I knew enough at that point to take away the R. Okay, okay. Um, you were aware about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. And uh, did you um, pick up sort of the local ways of saying things in both areas? Um, yes, but I can't. Like I, I couldn't. I'd be, I'd be hard pressed right now to think of you know. Oh, that's not, yeah, yeah. It's it's difficult always, but. Um, and did you do a lot of do some traveling while you were in China? Yeah, um, that was actually that was actually the greatest thing about the trip. We did a lot of traveling. Um, actually, we made it um, to Tibet as well. Oh yeah, um, which was is it? it was awesome. It was really um, it was yeah it was it was awesome, but it was also at the same time um, a little bit unnerving. And yeah, the the situation that we had the situation in Tibet was was particularly interesting because with the program that we were in. Um, we were given access to some pretty high-powered political people mm-hmm. in Tibet, and what was interesting about that was these high-powered political people in Tibet, like um, uh, Chinese government officials, they actually invited us to to like at, like speak freely, and I thought that that was they were like, okay, look, um, 
you know, we know you're from the U.S. We know that you have, um, you know, real questions that you guys have freedom of the press, like, ask us anything and, you know, and be kind of, like, hard with us. And it was really, it was, it was interesting because we asked, like, a lot of questions about, um, you know, and, and got at the same time sort of expected answers right, from a government right. official. But, um, but we really kind of pushed, the, you know, you know Push some of the questions about you know human rights and um, uh, you know and, and, and ask like you know do they really think that you know Tibet long term belongs um, you know should belong to China so we were quite we were quite provocative so these were Chinese government officials yeah and they invited us to speak freely and then and then we uh, you know we really <laughs> we did we, we asked some some really hard questions interesting what kind of answers did you get. Um, just the expected ones, or yeah, I mean, like you know, does Tibet belong? You know, does Tibet belong to China? Mm -hmm. You know, yes, um, and you know, human rights. You know, are there human rights? Uh, you know, violations. Um, the answer there was kind of again. I'm I'm trying to like you know pull you know recall from my history. The, the answer was um, you know sometimes I think the answer was something was was sometimes. Um, I forget exactly how, how he said it, but, but there was something to the effect, sometimes, um, you know, you need to spank your child if he's misbehaving or, or something like that. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was, yeah, it was pretty intense. Um, the other interesting thing was, in addition to that, um, I, I took a lot of walks um, into, like, just into, uh, they're not fields, but they're, just kind of like these open, like rocky areas. So I was just like I, you know, walked away from the sort of uh, you know Chinese city of, of Lhasa, or, or let's say not the Chinese city of Lhasa, but the the Chinese part of the city. And I, I did like a lot of walking, like out into um, uh, like out to, to speak with actual Tibetans. And it was really interesting because they were they were really really friendly, and they you know they saw some you know crazy Western guy like walking along, and, and they were super super curious. So they came up and. Um, and were you know those that spoke English were were thanking me for coming and and were very kind of um, interested in kind of telling me about their kind of um, yeah were, were interested in telling me their their stories um, and so I had a couple of, of really interesting conversations. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and where else did you did you happen to go to or know much about Xinjiang? Um, yeah, we went we went to um, we went to we went to Chengdu. Mm -hmm. Um, sorry, that's in Sichuan. What am I thinking? Xinjiang. Xinjiang um, is like the right where the Uyghurs. No, no, no. Sorry, no. We did not. We didn't go to Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. We went to Sichuan. Sorry. Yeah. But Ge you, geography. You know, you know about that? Like the whole situation there. It's just yeah. really interesting, I think, because that's where the borders. It's where the borders are with all the states that you wouldn't expect. You don't think about are bordering China, like right. the stands, all this. Afghanistan, for example, mm -hmm. and then um, former Soviet states, with, and then with Kazakhstan. I think it's just really interesting that these people are not Han Chinese, and somehow they're like really far from being Han Chinese, yeah. and finding themselves under the control of Chinese mm -hmm. government. Really interesting. Did you get to talk to anybody about that, or um, no? No, yeah, it's 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 not such a known or spoken about topic. Mm -hmm. I think it could be could be could be more popular to talk about that. And yeah, so how was the the rest of your travels in just in China, or did you go elsewhere in Asia? I, well, I mean, to to get to um, to get 
to Beijing. I took the Trans-Siberian. So I went from... <laughs> so that was, uh, that, was, that was cool. That was, I, I took a month um, to, to travel, and that was, a, that was an adventure in its own right. Mm -hmm. um, I went from Helsinki to St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg to Moscow, and then I went to Novosibirsk, Irkutsk, and then Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia, mm -hmm. and then um, to Beijing. Mm -hmm. And so that was, uh, so I, I, you know, coming into, coming into the semester, I did, you know, kind of like a month traveling through Russia. Um, and then we also went to, went to Hainan, um, went to Hainan, which was kind of like a little vacation uh, that we took over the Moon Festival. Uh, in addition to that, we went to Hong Kong. Uh, we went to, let's see, where else? Chengdu, I said. We went to, uh, we, <laughs> what was interesting, we went to, uh, to some of the, the northeast provinces. Mm -hmm. um, so we went to Datong and Zhangjiakou, mm -hmm. uh, which was a very, like, you know, coal, you know, kind of coal mining area. And that was, that was really interesting. Was it in the winter or in the summer? It was in the fall. Okay. Kind of bearable. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was still like, you know, very, very smoky. Yeah. Um, we also, we, you know, we did some, some crazy uh, camping trips. We camped on the Great Wall, mm -hmm. um, kind of like, you know, went up, up there and, and camped overnight, um, made fires, and that was a pretty, that was a cool experience. Um, since you've done so much traveling, do you, do you think that most Americans would benefit from, from having these sorts, sorts of experiences? Um, I, I, I really do, yeah. I think that, I think that yeah, by, by and large, Americans should go and, and travel. Um, it's kind of like it's lacking. It's lacking in the, in the American psyche mm -hmm. to, to go experience. Well, it, it's weird because, I mean, I, I disagree a little bit. It, it's not that it's lacking. It's just that the U.S. is so big. And there are so many um, there are so many opportunities for excitement and adventure within the, the within the United States that it's almost it's almost understandable why people wouldn't you know they, they could conceivably I mean especially if you're only getting ten days of vacation a year if you're getting like a, a relatively mm -hmm. small amount of vacation time you know taking that that bigger trip to Europe or taking that bigger trip you know overseas is um, is first of all it, it could be you know you know it could be cost prohibitive. Um, the second thing is that you just have so many great options within the U.S. And to be honest with you, I love, I love traveling in the U.S. Um, I love road trips in the West. I love, um, you know, going to the South. I love, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really, even, even coming back to New England and just like, you know, going around New England, fall foliage, um, going down to the Cape. I mean, the really, really, you know, awesome way to spend your time. Um, and so I think it's, it's almost... I think that there is a travel culture in the U.S. It's just you know it's a road trip and and stay within the U.S. kind of kind of culture. Um, that being said, I do think it is important to to kind of you know to go and you know and travel overseas. Just so you have a, a frame of reference and a, and a frame of comparison. I feel like a lot of people um, they'll just kind of they'll sort of they'll write off traveling overseas um, and they'll. Yeah, they'll write off traveling overseas, and then not only do they write off traveling overseas, they won't listen um, or kind of, um, yeah, downplay the importance that that we'll other country says. Back to the might makes right hmm? thing. The might the makes might right, right about yeah. the United States. Like, oh, why would we go somewhere else when everything great is here? Hmm. 
That, that being said, I, I think there is a, like an like an increasing trend. Like I think that more and more young people are traveling overseas. Mm -hmm. Like I think that like a lot of the you know I think that people are starting to wake up and realize oh it's actually not that expensive to travel overseas. Um, and then the price is coming down. Ryanair is expanding over to, to yeah. North America. So yeah, and there's Wow, there's Wow Air as well. What's that? It's like a new Icelandic carrier, and um, mm -hmm. you can get like it's like 180 dollars like one way from Boston to Berlin if you book it like you know like right if you so, get the right one yeah. mm -hmm. and so I think yeah I mean I encourage I encourage everyone to come from overseas like check it out um, see see kind of what works here what doesn't work here and just have an open honest kind of frame of comparison not just you know US is the best when clearly it's you know I, I think by many many indicators it's not the best in a lot of different areas and and I think that yeah, I think that people just kind of need to be open and honest and say, okay, let's be honest here for a second. No, we're not the best in all the areas. Areas Also, that's not the end of the world. We don't have to be the best in every single area, but let's take a look where, you know, with other countries where they are the best in this particular area, and let's see if we can maybe learn something from them. Yeah, it's good and, to be humbling. Yeah. That, yeah. It's, not, it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's not, it's not the end of the world if, you know, if, if the United States is, is kind of taking some ideas that, that other, other countries or, or citizens of other countries have. I mean, that's, that's actually how the United States got to be where it is today in the first place, was we had you know, waves and waves of immigration that brought lots of interesting ideas from all over the world, and we capitalized on those ideas, and, and that's kind of how the U.S. sort of you know, became or you know, kind of reached this sort of privileged yeah. Um, positions. It was like a magnet of talent. A magnet of talent, yeah. They also did a lot, like, you know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to um, erase over, like, the, the very many negative things that the, you know, the U.S. did with our foreign policy and um, uh, exterminating the Indians, uh, Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're getting close to the end of our time, so okay. is there anything you want to plug? Um, just your film? No, no, I'm, I, I, I guess I want to thank everyone for, for listening. Um, and I, and I want I, to thank you for being on the first episode in Berlin. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Any, uh, anytime you want to talk, we can, we can talk either online or, or offline. All right. Sweet. And I'll put your, the link to your website on the show notes. Perfect. And thanks for listening guys. And we'll see you. You'll hear from us next time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.